We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. This is the opportunity for us to engage in perhaps conversations that are a little bit wider and deeper than normal. And uh, today's podcast, it doesn't come much deeper than this. God and Menzies, the faith that shaped a prime minister and his nation by David First Roberts. That's the book we'll be discussing today, and we'll be discussing it with the author, David First Roberts. David, welcome to Watercooler Conversation. Great to be with you again, Nick. This is an unusual book in some ways for Australia. I don't believe, I'm writing saying this, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, there's never been a book of this nature written about an Australian Prime Minister, one that just focuses on their faith and their values that come from that faith and how they inter- how that then inter- influenced their politics. So being books overseas, uh, a number, you quote them in this, but that's right, isn't it? We've never really looked seriously at this in Australia. Yes, right. That's right. This is the first of its kind. Um, so in the United States, we've had a few uh, sort of, I guess you could call them faith biographies of figures from... Uh, Abraham Lincoln to Ronald Reagan and recently Dwight Eisenhower. And in Britain, we've had a couple also on Winston Churchill, a book called God and Churchill. And also uh, one on uh, Queen Elizabeth and her faith. And so this is a first for Australia. We have had an author, Roy Williams, who wrote a book on the uh, faith of each Prime Minister from Edmund Barton to uh, Tony Abbott, where he devoted a chapter to each Prime Minister's faith. But this is the first um, in-depth, standalone study of a leader's faith in the Australian context. Yeah, and I think on this vein, we should we should credit uh, Greg Sheridan, my former colleague at The Australian, who was on this podcast very recently, uh, he's written now two books uh, looking at the intersection between Christianity uh, and faith uh, and uh, talking to various politicians, uh, sitting and former politicians about it. The latest one, Christians, the Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, is the book that I chatted with him about last week. That podcast has had enormous number of downloads, which uh, gives me great hope, David, for your book. I, I think there is massive interest or almost, dare I use the word revival, it's almost a revival in interest in the Christian faith, certainly on the centre-right. Do you detect that? Yes, well, I think there is a hunger for people to uh, understand the deeper questions of life and what makes people tick, what makes people think the way they do and act the way they do. And... um, A real source of that, of course, is uh, religious faith, along with um, philosophy and ideology and life experience and all those other factors as well. Yeah, so when you come to think of it then, the fact that this is, in in essence, the first book of this genre uh, shows that we we haven't really been doing our job, have we, as as historians, as... as, uh, political commentators as whatever, if, we, if we're if we not looking at this, because we want to know, obviously you want to know what makes a political leader tick, politically, particularly the prime minister, and uh, you're only going to get a very small part of it unless you're prepared to get into these fundamental, fundamental matters of faith. Yes, that's right. I think um, we need to uh, delve deeper to understand the... Uh, worldview that informs our leaders and um, how they think about the world, um, how they read history, how they understand economics, how they um, understand also uh, the human condition with um, anthropology and sociology and how people relate to one another. And um, 
a large part of that worldview, of course, um, is informed largely, not always necessarily, but in many cases by a religious faith of one kind or another. Let's set this up, David. Let's explain why you and I are certainly uh, passionate about Menzies, why it's important, why Menzies is important. And I think because he's been, I think we'd agree, generally uh, underdone, if you like, in, in our study of Australian history, maybe not everybody appreciates this, why he's so important. So let's just set him up. Uh, number one, he was our longest serving prime minister by quite some time. He was tremendously influential in shaping post-war Australia because he was prime minister immediately four years after World War Two, He was in power from 1914, I'm sorry, 1949 until his retirement in 66. So that's what, 17 years almost. And, um, and then his party went on to continue in government for another uh, six years after that. So two terms, so uh, two and a bit terms. So that by dint of his longevity and the longevity of the party, he, his philosophy, I think, shaped post-war Australia. But also he was just a brilliant mind, wasn't he? I mean, he, I, I've never read anybody who's been able to articulate the pr- classical liberal philosophy, which is what he believed, so clearly and so consistently. I mean, yes, sure, there's there's been a lot of people, I suppose you've got to go back to the 19th to the 18th century even to find the great masters of classical liberal philosophy but it's certainly in the contemporary era in the 20th century nobody was able to grasp it as well as he did so first of all would you agree with those big statements and then we can move on to the next part yes of course well he was very well educated uh, both in the formal sense through his um, education at wesley college in melbourne which he um, attained a place through a scholarship and also through his law degree at the University of Melbourne, from which he graduated with first-class honours in 1918. And um, he was also very well educated in the self-educated sense. He read very widely, both fiction and non-fiction. He was very uh, conversant with all of the English literature of Shakespeare and Keats and Milton and Francis Bacon. And he was also um, very well versed in the Bible, of course, but also um, the political philosophers, um, especially Edmund Burke and John Stuart Mill, uh, both of whom he quotes with approval, as well as Thomas Babington Macaulay, the great uh, 19th century English Whig historian, and some of the American uh, great figures as well, including um, Abraham Lincoln whom he described as one of the finest men to speak English. Well, okay, so we've established Menzies matters, I guess. <laughs> Sum it all up the last seven or eight minutes of this podcast. Menzies matters. So now let's get into the substance of your book, David. Now, Robert Menzies uh, was uh, the last Prime Minister of Australia to be born before Federation, before 1901. So that makes him an interesting figure, albeit only five years Sorry, got my sums wrong. Seven years before, 1894, December 20, 1894, Robert Menzies is born in the um, town of Japarit in north, far northwestern Victoria, uh, up there in the Mallee, up in the wheat-growing country. You pick up the story from there. Where did his faith come from? Yes, so he was the son of a Presbyterian-turned Methodist preacher, James Menzies. And um, James Menzies was a storekeeper and a coach painter. And he was of um, Scottish Presbyterian stock. But when he relocated to uh, Japarit with his wife, Kate, um, there was no Presbyterian church in the district. So he became involved with the local Methodist church. And um, it was through this church into which uh, Menzies um, was introduced to uh, the Christian faith. He would have been part of the uh, Methodist Sunday School there in Japarit, and he would have heard his father preach on numerous occasions. 
and uh, that was his upbringing and um, when the t time came for him to go to school he was at the local um, schools in Japarat and then Ballarat but he opted to go to Wesley College in Melbourne and um, Wesley College of course uh, was founded by the Methodist Church um, as its name implies the founder of Methodism John Wesley and uh, it was at Wesley College um, into which Menzies would have imbibed more Methodist um, ideas perhaps and um, then he went on to uh, the University of Melbourne to study law and uh, he was exposed to a couple of uh, Christian influences at the University of Melbourne. Uh, the first and most significant was the Melbourne University Student Christian Union, which was founded in the late 19th century. And it was sort of a uh, liberal Protestant movement uh, that was very socially engaged and very focused on raising Christians to be active contributors to public and political life. And so Menzies was um, involved with that uh, union and he actually served as president of the Melbourne University Student Christian Union in 1916. And now the other influence that Menzies was um, exposed to at university was the uh, preaching of um, the evangelical C.H. Nash and um, I guess this was a different stream of Protestantism which was more sort of uh, grounded in the Bible and in conservative uh, evangelical theology but from C.H. Nash uh, Menzies imbibed a great love of scripture and a familiarity with the Bible and um, his familiarity with the Bible became very manifest in that his speeches were always peppered with biblical quotes and aphorisms and idioms and metaphors. Let's go back a bit because I want to pick up on what I think is another crucial aspect to Menzies' faith. It's a very practical faith. It's a faith uh, which involves showing your faith through your works, through working out your own salvation, through being uh, leading to what you know, we call the Protestant work ethic. I think I don't want to, don't mean to be at all disparaging to Catholics when I say that, but the Protestant work ethic, well-known expression. Um, now, the other part of Menzies, I think, is um, magical to understand the connections. Is 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 his Scottish heritage? So his Scottish Scottish Presbyterian family, uh, and at that time. Uh, especially in Victoria, but not just in Victoria, there were many, many uh, Scottish migrants, all who seemed to be tremendously hardworking, innovative um, from that Presbyterian tradition, uh, who all seemed to be working out their salvation in the same way. I'll, I'll pick on one, because he does get a mention in your book, uh, and this is a mere fascinating connection, uh, and that's uh, Hugh uh, Victor Mackay, uh, who, having said Scottish, Hugh Victor Mackay was a Protestant from Irish stock, but I think the same tradition holds true. Uh, and Hugh, Hugh Victor Mackay w was uh, the inventor and, and manufacturer of the Sunshine Harvester, which uh, I think most people have heard about. You go to any country town now, any museum in any country town, there's always a Sunshine Harvester. It was just fantastic harvester machine built for Australian conditions, quite innovative um, that uh, Mackay designed and Renzi's father sold, didn't he? He was a, I think he was a Sunshine Harvester dealer for Japarit. Yes, that's right. But Mackay, you know, set up the Sunshine Harvester factory. At, at one time, it was the largest factory in the, uh, I believe in the Southern Hemisphere, if not in the entire empire. Um, uh, mass producing these things, exporting them, and around that, and this is where the faith comes in. That the, the town, you know, the, what's now the suburb of Sunshine in Victoria, that was effectively a, uh, a a place that he built for his workers with houses and a church. There's a church, a Presbyterian church there, which he constructed. 
So after that rather long detour, David, maybe you can pick up and, and talk about that practical Christianity that Menzies had. It was, wasn't just a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, an intellectual thing. It wasn't. It, it had its practical workings through, uh, and this becomes relevant, of course, in the nature of the party he set up. Yes, of course. So um, going back to his family background, when Menzies' father, James, was based in Melbourne, he ran this institution called the Melbourne Home for Boys, which was based on the old ragged schools in London, founded initially by Thomas Guthrie, but grown by the um, evangelical social reformer, Lord Shaftesbury. And so this Melbourne Home for Boys was a charity that um, provided education and accommodation for poor boys from homeless backgrounds. And it also gave them a Christian education. And um, Menzies' father was uh, involved with this uh, charity, as was um, his son, James Jr., uh, who was Robert's brother. And um, James Jr. took over the running of the boys' home. And um, in the 1950s, when there was a ceremonial function, he invited his brother, then the Prime Minister, Sir Robert, to um, officiate at this function. And in so doing, Menzies identified himself with the um, practical Christianity of his brother, which was started by his own father. Menzies' practical Christianity also meant that he had a great regard for the um, church charities that were founded in Melbourne, especially the Wesley uh, Central Methodist Mission that was founded in um, the late 19th century. And of course, he was a great admirer of the Salvation Army, founded by the um, Methodist firebrand preacher, William Booth. This practical Christianity um, for Menzies was um, so important to uh, demonstrating God's love in action uh, to the world. So now let's make the connection, David, between Menzies' Christianity, his practical Christianity, as we've discussed, and liberalism. Uh, liberalism is not something he invented, but he he revived it in essence in Australia with the foundation of the Liberal Party in 1944. But uh, whether the party was called that or not, Menzies was a liberal in a philosophical sense all his life, right? And that, that stemmed from his Christianity. Yes, so to a large degree there was an overlap between um, Christianity and uh, liberalism going right back to colonial times. And um, Menzies really sort of represented the um, old-fashioned 19th century Whig liberalism, uh, going right back to Edmund Burke, but also represented by the likes of um, T.B. Macaulay and um, William Erwitt Gladstone, the great uh, liberal prime minister of Britain in the 19th century. And uh, this liberalism was heavily infused with um, Christian values, um, especially in its um, contribution to humanitarian social reform uh, with uh, the Factory Acts and with um, other ameliorative measures to uh, improve the standard of living for ordinary people. And um, it believed and affirmed the uh, common humanity of all. And... Um, this liberalism was represented, of course, in Australia's early uh, federation history by um, Alfred Deakin, uh, whom himself was not necessarily a Christian of the smaller orthodox kind. He was a spiritualist, but he nonetheless imbibed the um, Christian underpinnings of this early liberalism in Australia. And uh, Menzies' revival of liberalism in the 1940s was to a large extent a revival of the old uh, Deaconite liberalism of um, early Federation Australia. 
You mentioned there this idea of equal respect um, for um, your fellow man, which uh, for Menzies was, was the most fundamental. There seemed to be nothing more central to liberalism than the fact that everybody deserves equal respect. Everybody deserves, as far as possible, uh, an equal opportunity in life. Uh, and and this time and time again becomes the the driving passion, if you like, the driving sentiment to so much of what he did in political life. Uh, and, and so egalitarianism, uh, as as we call it and others call it, some people get confused about that term, but egalitarianism as opposed to equality, which is equality being um, equal outcomes, egalitarianism being equal respect and equal opportunity in in my in my interpretation of it so that view that view that um uh every human being deserved the same dignity as every other that no one human being no one human being was inherently better than another can you take us through where that that links us back to christianity Menzies famously said um, in one of his addresses to um, the Wesley Church in Melbourne, these addresses were known as the Pleasant Sunday Afternoon addresses, which he um, he did when he was hosted by his good friend and uh, Melbourne Methodist cleric, um, Sir Irving Clarence Benson. And anyhow, in this uh, speech, which I think he gave in 1960, he talked about the nature of democracy and he said that the oldest expression of democracy is actually found in the Old Testament when uh, Cain is confronted by God after murdering his brother Abel and Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And so this uh, principle of being one's brother's keeper Menzies saw as uh, intrinsic to democracy and uh, it was a uh, principle he invoked when he um, gave his uh, speech at the inauguration of the Liberal Party in 1944 in Albury. He said that we are an individualistic party, not in the negative sense of uh, every person for themselves, but in the sense that uh, each one is his brother's keeper. Yes, unpack that a bit further because that sentiment that you know everybody should be independent, should be free to do their own thing, if you like, is, is strongly held. But not everybody, I think, sees it the way Menzies did, where in 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 terms of the fact that with freedom came a responsibility or duty. I think was the word Menzies used more often than not, a duty towards one's fellow citizens. Um, those two things were just linked. They just couldn't be separated in Menzies' mind. Um, again, explain to me where that we find that idea in, um, in the Gospels or in the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition more broadly. Yes, well, certainly um, Menzies believed that true freedom was just as much about duties as it was about rights and obligations as much as it was about freedoms and um, he understood this in terms of people being um, connected interconnected with each other in a polity such as australia or any other democracy and for that idea he drew from the teachings of the apostle paul who said in his first letter to the Corinthians that um, we are all members one of another. And uh, Paul gave this illustration when he was talking about the church and how every member of the church has uh, complementary gifts to build up the church as a whole. So uh, Menzies extrapolates that biblical principle and applies it to civil society, whereby each and every member of society is connected to each other um, through mutual obligations and responsibilities and each member is a valuable part of society and we are all interconnected 
by being members of one another so that one's, one person's rights will be another person's obligations. And uh, it was also reinforced, of course, um, in liberal thought through the um, social contract uh, theory of John Locke, the great um, 17th century uh, English liberal philosopher. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. You're listening to the Water Cooler Conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. And my guest today is... David First Roberts, author of God and Menzies, The Faith That Shaped a Prime Minister and His Nation. David, I think one of the great um, services you've done in this book is you pulled together so well and so clearly the, the philosophical underpinnings of Menzies and the party he founded, the sort of substructure, if you like, uh, that it becomes not just a work of history, but a, a book with a a practical application. I suspect Menzies would have liked to put with a practical application rather than just one that was merely uh, theoretical. A practical application in that you can take these principles now and apply them to some of the great challenges of our time. This came up at the the launch we did very recently online, uh, and we had a a question in from one of the one of the people on that call, which I thought was just a perfect example of this. Uh, the question was this, right? And it's a question we talk about a lot at the moment. Uh, so should the government mandate vaccines, effectively mandate vaccines uh, for people for coronavirus? Okay, so how do you think about that from a liberal point of view? Well, on the first, I mean, my instinct is to say, well, absolutely not, because you've got, uh, you know, you should be free to make those decisions yourself. You shouldn't be forced into making a decision of that nature about something which is essentially so personal as about what what you put into your body. You, you should be free to weigh it up and make that, that choice yourself. But of course, the other bit, and this comes to what you said earlier about, am I my brother's keeper? Is there a responsibility that goes with that freedom to responsibility to others? So now there seems to be this very strong argument about that uh, I have a responsibility to take the virus to protect my fellow citizens. Uh, now, leaving aside, that's the reversal of the way we normally think about vaccines. Normally we take vaccines to protect ourselves. Uh, talk, this is, it's, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Essentially what I'm coming to. It's, it's no straightforward or easy answer to it, but we should at least frame the question in the way I suspect Menzies would have done, which is the balance between my freedom to take or not take the vaccine and my responsibility to ensure that I don't harm my fellow citizens. Yes, well, I think there are two principles to be mindful of. And the first principle is that of... Um, advancing the common good and doing what's right not only for ourselves but our fellow citizens and the common good of the country. And so uh, in this current context with a pandemic, um, the good thing to do would be to get vaccinated for your own protection and also for the protection of your fellow citizens and in doing so, you would be serving your fellow citizens as your fellow neighbours and you'd be treating them as your brother's keeper or sister's keeper and you'd be doing what's right for yourself and what's right for your fellow citizens and what's right for the country. 
And so to that end, I think um, there'd be a case for strongly encouraging every citizen to be vaccinated. The other principle, however, is that of um, freedom of conscience and um, the right for people to uh, conscientiously object to something either on personal grounds of um, health or religion or philosophy or whatever. Um, a citizen may decline to participate in something, whether it's um, vaccination or conscription or whatever it is. And um, Menzies would equally defend the right of um, conscientious objectors and uh, even though they are a very small minority, he would probably defend their right to say no and um, he would respect their um, deeply held religious or social sensibilities or indeed uh, health reasons for not uh, proceeding with a vaccine. Menzies would not have called himself a libertarian, would he, if he'd have even thought about the concept of libertarianism, which seems to have had a revival recently. Uh, libertarianism seems to me, and I may be doing libertarians a disservice here, but essentially the, the liberal side in the sense of personal freedom, but with responsibility detached. Uh, I had an interesting experience of this on a, on a platform in a discussion with uh, a libertarian, uh, and we were discussing the, the question, is all taxation theft? Uh, to which the answer is, of course not. Um, and then, But they, they made the argument that they, as somebody who lived in New South Wales, this person who lived in New South Wales, should not be obliged to pay for the building of roads in the Northern Territory. Uh, and some of them would take it even further and say, I should not be obliged to pay... Uh, to support a military, because I don't think we need one. Uh, now that, that's uh, that's probably the extreme of libertarianism, but I think you and I can see why Mentis would have found all that rather odd. Explain to me. Yes, so certainly his political philosophy was liberal, but not libertarian. For Menzies, I think uh, libertarianism would have fallen far short of his uh, vision of civil society as being a polity of interdependent citizens with rights and obligations towards each other. I think for Menzies, libertarianism would place too much stress on individual rights and freedoms, which are important, of course, but never to the detriment of our broader social obligations to each other and also our um, commitment to the common good of a nation or a community as a whole. We're not going to get through everything in this podcast obviously David there's so many great ideas to explore and, and we'll we'll come back and do that we maybe bring others into the conversation uh, and talk about some of these other really uh, uh, central vital debating points for anybody on the centre-right, in my view. But let's move on and talk about education. Robert Menzies, great believer in education. He he really was the man or the leader, the Prime Minister, who, who triggered the great expansion of our university system from the late 1950s onwards. Uh, so to get through a point where I think roughly less than 4% of the population went on to university from school in the in the mid-1950s. Uh, now we're talking, what, 40, 40 plus percent. What was Menzies' idea of the university? Did, what did he think a university education was about? And by extension, is the modern university the kind of university Menzies would have envisioned? Menzies first gave his vision for higher education when he gave a speech in 1939 about the sevenfold purpose of a university. And he said, among other things, that a university must be devoted to um, the search for the truth, 
um, the training of uh, personal character and also bridging the uh, the gulf between the uh, the academic and the uh, ordinary practical person and so universities would help uh, bring about a greater communion if you like between um, somebody involved in academic pursuits and someone else involved in more practical vocational lines of work and uh, I think there's a lot to learn from those principles and uh, Menzies importantly believed that universities were the great um, incubators of um, culture and civilization. Their primary purpose was to produce civilized minds where people would have a greater understanding of um, human beings and their relationship to each other, and indeed their relationship to God. And as such, uh, Menzies highly esteemed the liberal arts disciplines of history, philosophy, theology, and English literature for furnishing people with a greater understanding of the human condition and of how we relate to one another. And he spoke of this in a context where um, he had witnessed two cataclysmic world wars. And he saw that as a failure of the human spirit, where people had ceased to see each other as human beings created in the image of God, and more as machines to be dispensed with. And so he was very keen for universities to be a corrective to this dangerous understanding um, where universities would re-inculcate the value of human beings and the importance of affirming our common humanity and of advancing human understanding between different people. Yeah, interestingly, as you point out there, Menzies uh, believed in learning for its own sake, didn't he? And that's uh, interesting. It's interesting that he he focused on the humanities. He 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 was very insistent that a university shouldn't just be a scientific or um, place. It should be about the physical sciences, but also about the humanities. Uh, in contrast, I think, to the way they were thinking about higher education in the United States around that time, uh, which, as you'll recall, was uh, you know, the, 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 the impetus for building higher education in America around that time was the fact that the Russians seemed to be getting a bit of a jump on them with the launch of the Sputnik. There was worried that you know, the Russians would gain a, a scientific and technological edge, and they definitely des- desperately wanted to train up scientists. Uh, that wasn't so prominent in the arguments here so that's interesting isn't it he he did have this idea of a general education in in studying to make you a better more civilized person as well as to gain knowledge that might be of practical use i wonder what he would have made though of the way particularly the humanities have gone so in universities it's the humanity departments which almost universally seem to have changed beyond all recognition and have become, uh, you know, quite different to what Menzies would have imagined. Would you agree with that? Yes, most certainly. On your first point, uh, Menzies, of course, affirmed the importance of um, science education. He believed that technology and the advance of science was um, important for human happiness. But at the same time, he also wanted us to not only have more scientists, but more humanists. And by humanism, he meant not necessarily a secular humanism, but more of a Christian-inspired humanism that reminded people of their obligations to one another and their relationship with God. And uh, to your second point about... um, the change in the humanities. Well, I think um, Menzies would not have welcomed the rise of uh, both critical theory and postmodernism in the academy. 
which of course has given rise to the modern uh, trend of identity politics. Um, he would have seen that as negating our common humanity, and he would have also seen it as uh, der derogating from um, received truths that had made our civilization great. And um, he was well known for his um, affirmation and affection for what he called the ancient virtues and the services that our church schools would render to them. He, he said that in his um, 1969 memoir, Afternoon Light. Because today's university humanities departments seem to be the very opposite of that, don't they? They're not. They're not. Uh, they scorn religion. I mean, they 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 actually absolutely. If you're looking for people who are opposed to freedom of religion, who want religion squashed, who see religion almost as a a threat to them, um, then you you go to the humanities department. But this is what's beautiful about about Menzies in your explanation for Menzies. Freedom of religion wasn't just a, a nice add-on extra, if you can. It was central to everything you believe about, about human beings, about humanity. Uh, I'll just read this um, quote from a Freedom of Worship broadcast, 3rd of July, 1942, which I found, incidentally, in the book you edited last year, Menzies in His Own Words, a collection of quotes. Menzies says, We are a diversity of creatures with a diversity of minds and emotions and imaginations and faiths. When we claim freedom of worship, we claim room for all and respect for all. So quite, it's quite different from the Christianity or faith as its people, detractors, paint it. They paint it as something that is narrow-minded, dogmatic. Uh, un, unsympathetic to other ideas, um, un, you know, not diverse. But for Menzies, it was the fact that we accept, you know, the freedom to worship any faith or no faith. That freedom essentially says, well, that is diversity for you. We don't care where you are. We will still treat you with the same respect. You still will get equal rights from the state um, and uh, as far as we're concerned, that's your business. And and so the the the, the religious freedom t turns out not to be the freedom to be a bigot, which, which some would claim, but the very opposite. Yes, that's right. So um, Menzies affirmed um, freedom of faith for all, for um, believers and non-believers alike, whether you were atheist or agnostic or a naturalist uh, skeptic. Uh, there was uh, accommodation for all in civil society. And um, this, of course, was born of his liberal philosophy that um, of religious toleration, which was, um, of course, uh, developed by John Locke again in the uh, 17th century and um, articulated both by uh, Edmund Burke and also John Stuart Mill. But it was also uh, inspired by a Christian belief as well that um, faith was something that um, was given by God to humanity and the state had no right to interpose and enforce restrictions on faith. And it was also an understanding that, um, Christian understanding that, um, as part of loving our neighbours, we should afford them the freedom to uh, practice their faith. Um, we have every right to uh, persuade people of another faith um, through evangelism and um, apologetics, but um, there is that freedom for people to practice their faith um, in the civic realm. Well, Dave, we're running out of time, but there's two things I really want to pack in before we go, two, two ideas. First of all, an extension of that diversity argument that freedom of religion is about 
what did Menzies say? When we claim freedom of worship, we claim room and respect for all. Menzies was not just closely aligned to Christianity. He had a great um, uh, relationship with the Jewish community and understood, it seems to be, the Jewish faith very well. He understood the Jewish faith uh, not as an alternative or an, old, an earlier version of Christianity, but, but part of the same tradition, the, 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 the links that the Apostle Paul draws, that uh, Christianity, is, Christianity is, in a sense, the religion of diversity, because it says that you don't have to be a Jew, you don't, you don't have to be one of the children of Abraham in order to uh, get, you know, get God's God, in order that you should get God's blessings. Now, Menzies, it wasn't just that he was being nice to Jewish people; he just saw that whole tradition as one, didn't he? Yes, of course. Well, he um, really cherished the uh, Old Testament roots of Christianity, and. Uh, he recognised in Judaism uh, many of the um, themes that Christians also celebrate, such as that of atonement and of forgiveness. And he celebrated um, the Jewish um, celebration of these ideals and he also um, honoured the Jewish community for its um, high esteem of family and of community and of um, also endeavour in all kinds of fields, whether it was politics, the law or the military, uh, figures from Sir John Monash to Sir Isaac Isaacs, uh, eminent Australians were admired by Menzies as also great Jews. The last chapter of your book, David, nourished by things beyond the material. And you begin with a quote from Menzies. It's not enough to be a rich country. It is not enough to be a prosperous country. It is not enough to have a superb system of, in, of industrial justice. It's not enough to have security because not one of those things will distinguish us from the brute. It is what exists in the minds of men, in the spirit of men, that matters in a new world this idea of menzies i mean i think just to set this question up it seems to me from the 1970s 1970s 1980s the thatcher reagan period the time of of um uh you know new more realistic approach to economic policy a realization that state countries can't forever live on borrowed money uh, that low taxes encourage people to um, go out and be more entrepreneurial and produce more. Those ideas, very important, uh, and important that people like Margaret Thatcher, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, here, well, Bob, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, let's give them their due, and, and, and John Howard saw those things through. But I think the trouble with that, David, it, it, within the Liberal Party at least, is that they've come to think of the Liberal Party as being there to do nothing more than keep the books, if you like, nothing more than to run the economy. So I think this final chapter reminds us of this very strong element of Menzies, uh, which is all about we're not just there to build a prosperous country. That, that's, that's a means to an end rather than an end itself. The means to an end and that end is eventually a more civilized country a country that's that's a better place to live where people have a better standard of living but also a, a better and more complete life yes that's right um so uh menzies you know understood um the importance of growing the economy and uh he appreciated the value of um greater material comforts and higher living standards. But for him, that was not the total sum of life. It was also about um, our spiritual nourishment and our um, social capital as well. And he saw um, religious faith, um, family, friendships, relationships and community 
as great um, sources of uh, social capital that it was in the interests of society to nurture and to celebrate as part of a good life. Thank you, David. Your book, God and Menzies, The Faith That Shaped a Prime Minister and His Nation, available in paperback or hardback uh, from Japarit Press, Japarit Press being an imprint of the, of the Menzies Research Centre. Uh, you can get this book by going online, uh, menziesrc.org, and click on the book section. You'll follow that through. You'll be able to order it. I'll also put a link in the notes to this podcast in case people want to uh, order the book or indeed get in touch with us on any matter or become a subscriber uh, from uh, just $10 a month. But your book is the subject today. David, I, I really think you, what we've done today is not so much um, a conversation as a conversation starter with so many other things we, we should be exploring. And let's come back and do that in the coming months and bring other people into the conversation too. But um, finally, David, it only remains for me to thank you for your dedication and, uh, and uh, scholarship in writing this book and in making it so relevant uh, to the challenges that we face today. Good luck with it. I hope it sells well. And thank you for joining me on Water Cooler. Thank you, Nick. A pleasure to be with you. And in writing this book, I'm so indebted to the uh, support and encouragement of so many wonderful people, too many to name, but a few of them include Tony and Ray McClellan, John Nethercote, and so many others who really helped me with the uh, whole project. Indeed, David. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listening.